This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, that's me, and it is my great pleasure to be your host for today's program. We are in the interim period between quarters here at the university, but this show continues to plug on without a miss. Something like, what is this, our 613th show? Somewhere near there. We'd like to think we'll go on forever, but we know we won't. I'm just not sure what our final tally will be. Why don't we aim for 666? We expect to carry out the show with a little bit of help from our friends. And commence it as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 3rd of April. And it was, in fact, on April 3rd in 1776 that George Washington received the first honorary Doctor of Law degree conferred by Harvard College. I did not know that the father of our country was an honorary lawyer. We elect to forgive him for that. It was on this date in 1882, April 3rd, that Jesse James, one of America's most notorious outlaws, was shot to death by Robert Ford, a member of his gang who hoped to collect the bounty on Jesse's head. It was also the basis of a pretty good movie with Casey Affleck many years later. Even Brad Pitt's not too bad. Tough day to be a Habsburg. On April 3rd in 1919, Austria's National Assembly passed the Habsburg Law requiring all Habsburgs to leave the country or accept their status as ordinary citizens with no dynastic ambitions. I guess that explains why we haven't heard much from the Habsburgs for the last 95 years. So on April 3rd, 1948, the U.S. President Harry S. Truman signed into law the Foreign Assistance Act, commonly known as the Marshall Plan. Named after U.S. Secretary of State George C. Marshall, the program channeled more than $13 billion in aid to Europe between 1948 and 1951. It would seem based on this correspondence reading of The Wise Men by Evan Thomas and Walter Isaacson that John J. McCloy, along with Robert Bennett, Dean Acheson, Averill Harriman, and a few other people had more to do with the Marshall Plan than either President Truman or George Marshall. Hope we can bring Thomas back to talk about that book sometime in 2014. On April 3rd, 1956, Elvis sings his first RCA recording, Heartbreak Hotel, on NBC's Milton Berle show. By April 21st, the song became Elvis's first number one single. I'm so lonely. I'll be so lonely. I could die. All right, red-letter day in history for counting space junk. April 3rd, 1965, the U.S. orbits an experimental space reactor. It was, in fact, the first nuclear reactor in space, SNAP-10A. It was shut down due to failure after 43 days, but apparently still up there. And finally, it was on April 3rd in 1974 that the largest tornado outbreak ever recorded, the super outbreak, hit 11 U.S. states and southern Canada. In all, 144 tornadoes came down to Earth, which killed 330 people over two days. Of course, we should note that tornadoes are not necessarily a Midwestern U.S. phenomenon, although our perfect conditions of warm uh, air from the uh, Gulf of Mexico meeting cold Canadian air seems to make us the world's best spot to, to see a tornado. But in fact, two were spotted in Roseville just last week, and we expect to have a report on those later in the show. Our quote of the day is from Shirley Chisholm, who once said, When morality comes against profit, it is seldom that profit loses. 
Our quip of the day comes from Herbert Henry Asquith, Earl of Oxford, who said, Three sets of budgetary figures were maintained by the War Office. One to mislead the public, another to mislead the cabinet, and a third to mislead itself. Our jokes of the day come from some late-night hosts. First, Conan O'Brien, who said last week, Ukraine said it plans to take Russia to court to try and get Crimea back. So get ready next week for a very special Judge Judy. Said David Letterman a few nights ago, you know, tonight's audience is really quite good. Uh, last night's audience, boy, I don't want to say they were bad, but halfway through the show, they voted to join Russia. We have two stats today. The first comes from George Washington University, which notes that most Americans, 52%, have never heard of the Koch brothers. 25% of us have a negative view of the billionaire Republican donors, while 13% view them favorably. And the Sacramento News and Review scorekeeper column noted that the Sacramento Municipal Fire District may need some oversight with the news the Sacramento Bee the previous week noted that nearly two-thirds of the 641 employees at the fire district earned more than $100,000 a year before benefits. Of course, we do note that uh, the fire district came forward to the Bee and said, oh, no, they, 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 didn't, they didn't mean to say that. They didn't mean to factor in a lot of the overtime they knew into some of these, uh, some of these figures. And, uh, well, I'm sure they didn't mean to figure those in, considering the slight firestorm that has induced. Speaking of firestorms, let's introduce a bonus quote to today's program from uh, indicted State Senator Leland Yee. Apparently, after being uh, caught in a sting where Lee was uh, induced to get involved in some drug running and illegal fundraising, he said, uh, do I think we can make some money? I think we can make some money. Do I think we can get the goods? I think we can get the goods. We'll have more to say about Leland Yee in our second segment. Also, some other figures from Chinatown, which prior to a week ago we'd never heard of, like Rosie Pack and Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow. Our anecdote of the week is kind of a long one, but, but we like it, so we're going to use it anyway. It's a story from our favorite blog, Mark Evanier's News From Me, which goes as follows. This will probably amuse about six people, but since I'm one of them and it's my blog, here it is. At first, it may not sound like a tale from Costco, but be patient. We'll get there. Oh, I should note, he put this under a heading, tale from Costco. Said Mark, we all have silly little words and phrases that inexplicably make us laugh. One of mine came from a comedy writer named Fred Rosenberg, who, alas, is no longer with us. There are a number of Fred Rosenbergs alive and working in the entertainment industry, but not the one who did the great impression of comedian Jack Carter. It was a really dumb impression. That was kind of the point of it. But Fred did it every time I was around him, and I always found it funny. He wouldn't replicate Carter's voice, but he'd mimic the man's posture and frantic onstage manner. He notes in parentheses, For those of you who have come late to comedy, Jack Carter was a popular comic of the 50s and 60s, often seen on The Ed Sullivan Show and any other venue that booked stand-ups. So Fred would do this inane impression, and it consisted of one line out of Carter's act. This is from about 1962. These kids today with their dances, they do the mashed potato. They do the baked potato, said Evanier. And again, to translate for these kids today, the mashed potato was a dance somewhat like the twist. 
There was probably a dance called the baked potato somewhere, but Carter's joke was based on the assumption that there wasn't. And wasn't it absurd to think there might be? That's part of why Fred's impression was so funny to me, hauling out that silly line. Anyway, I laughed whenever Fred did the impression, and to this day, when I see mashed potatoes somewhere, I'm often reminded of Fred's portrayal, and I laugh. Yesterday afternoon, I was in Costco. I put a rotisserie chicken in my cart, and I put a packaged kosher for Passover turkey breast in my cart, and then I spotted a big package of prepared mashed potatoes on display, and it made me think of Fred Rosenberg's Jack Carter impression, and I laughed. It's been more than 20 years since I last saw Fred, but I heard his voice in my head, and I laughed out loud. Other shoppers looked at me strangely, but I didn't care. One well, elderly gen who glared at me was driving around on one of those silly little scooters that Costco provides for shoppers who can't walk. He stared at me as if to say, what's that jackass laughing about? And I stared at him and I thought, hey, I knew who that is. And I swear to God, it was Jack Carter. We have to get Mark Evanier back on this program. Uh, news from me is, is, like I say, our favorite blog. This is diminished slightly, perhaps, by the fact that it's our only blog. But damn it, it's a good one. And I think it's time we jumped into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Waldo, an 1,800-pound steer who kicked down a gate and escaped a North Dakota slaughterhouse. He was then adopted by a Michigan animal sanctuary. Said the farmer who sold him, he doesn't know how lucky he is. Well, on the other hand, a bad week for calling 911 after a sick Washington, D.C. woman summoned an ambulance but had to take a subway to the hospital when the two paramedics got into such a heated argument that they ignored her. And it was an ugly week last week for going to the circus after three angry elephants escaped handlers at the Moulage Hind Circus in Missouri and went on a rampage in the parking lot, smashing cars and RVs. Said a witness, things started shaking. I looked up and saw three elephants coming toward us. You could tell they were upset. You know, it's very tempting to segue from that into Robert Benchley's excuse for why he showed up late to work at Vanity Fair one day and <laughs> invoked a story about capturing escaped elephants. But we've done it before, and I think I'll resist. And unfortunately, substitute it with a story that's not funny at all. Noting that it was, in fact, a bad and ugly week last week for animals in the zoo in Copenhagen with the news that the Copenhagen Zoo, which generated global outrage last month when it killed a healthy 18-month-old giraffe named Marius, said it had to euthanize four lions this week to clear the path for a newly arrived young male. The zoo justified the killing of the two parents, aged 14 and 16, and their cubs on the grounds of genetic purity and conservation. I think that's, that's the same excuse that uh, caused Marius to go down, isn't it? Are we quite certain, Mr. Mavilla, that some of those uh, that Nazis that, that, that survived World War II didn't, didn't migrate north to Copenhagen? No, the reasoning of the officials in Denmark, if you want to call it that, is that uh, the new lion would invariably prey on the cubs, while there was a risk that the older male lion would try to breed with one of the female lions who were his offspring. 
In fact, a spokesman for the zoo stated that uh, if the zoo had not made the change in the pride now, then we would have risked that the old male would mate with these two females, his own offspring, and thereby give rise to inbreeding. Yeah, this, this, is, this is flawless logic, really, wouldn't you say? I mean, there's just no way on God's earth they could have gone in there and removed that male lion from the setting, wouldn't you think? At any rate, noted a piece by Dan Bilefsky in the New York Times, some say the killings, fair or not, are undermining the Danes' international image. And quoted Gerald Dick, a zoologist who's an executive director at the World Association of Zoos, as saying that U.S. zoos prefer to use contraception to prevent overpopulation or inbreeding. Whereas European zoos often favored animals breeding and expressing their natural behavior, including sexual reproduction. Anyway, we at, we at Radio Parallax think that they're nuts in Denmark. At least in the zoo management department. And our final item, which we're not sure we can classify either as good, bad, or ugly, is as follows. Dateline San Diego. Authorities say that an ultralight aircraft carrying about 250 pounds of marijuana has crashed in the mountains east of San Diego, but there's no sign of the pilot. The down plane was discovered by U.S. Customs and Border Protection during a routine air patrol. A team of federal agents picking through the wreckage in the remote Laguna Mountains found a helmet, gloves, and other gear. There was also a pair of footprints leading away from the crash site. We don't know what to make of this story. Photographs of the wreck show a very small ultralight. So we suspect that the pilot did not pay enough attention to the weight and balance requirements of his aircraft. But the whole story raises way more questions than it answers. We hope there's some resolution in the weeks to come. Let's do a little bit of follow-up on our discussion last week about military budgets raging out of control. We're somewhat grateful for the fact that the Pentagon has apparently decided that although it's not cost-effective to ship home $7 billion worth of American military hardware currently in Afghanistan, that they have reportedly decided to now at least drive it across the border and hand it over to Pakistan, which we guess is better than blowing it up. Well, I have to admit, the Pakistanis have not necessarily proved to be our best allies. Of course, we should note that in Afghanistan, some are asking why it is the U.S. can't leave all this military hardware for the Afghans to use in their struggle with the Taliban. And many Afghans suspect they're being punished for President Hamid Karzai's refusal to sign the security pact that the U.S. wants. What a damn mess in what, this, this year marks what, the 13th year of war in Afghanistan, making this the, uh, the longest war in American history by a factor of two? No, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the Revolutionary War, which had held the record for a couple centuries. Uh, the, the war in Iraq, of course, lasted something like, what, 10 years? Speaking of that other war, how about this item we've been sitting on since last year from the Los Angeles Times? The Times noted in March of 2013 that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan will ultimately cost between 4 and $6 trillion dollars when medical care and disability benefits are, are factored in. At that point last year, the bill to taxpayers so far had been reckoned at $2 trillion, plus $260 billion in interest on the resulting debt. One should note by way of comparison that the current federal budget is $3.8 trillion. 
It's noted that the largest future expenses will be medical care and disability benefits for veterans, and the big, big costs come 30 years down the line. Let's do some follow-up in science. We're still uh, trying to get a hold of some of the good people at the SETI Institute in the Mountain View to talk about uh, the Kepler space probe. They noted down in Mountain View that uh, the latest data from Kepler, which is still being analyzed, shows that the Milky Way is apparently brimming with small-scale solar system lookalikes. More than 300 planetary systems reminiscent of our own have now been found in the data collected by Kepler. Said Jason Rowe, the planets are small, they have circular orbits, their orbital planes are flat, and it starts to look like home very quickly. What I find curious is that, uh, that the planets that they're putting together from the data are generally smaller than Neptune. 94% are smaller than Neptune. And the average planet size in our solar system being the, uh, the least of the four gas giants, but larger than the rocky planets, which of which the Earth is number one. But yeah, they're now up to 340 multi-planet systems around other stars. This is some pretty cool stuff, and I think it's going to get cooler. And I hope we'll talk to these good people directly about it. And there was some news last week from our own solar system that might, might prove to be truly earth-shaking. On March 27th, a paper was published in Nature by Chadwick Trujillo and Scott Shepard. Trujillo is from the Gemini Observatory in Hawaii, and Shepard is, is with the Carnegie Institute for Science in Washington, D.C. They announced they have found a new member of the sun's retinue in a part of the solar system which astronomers know very little about. The new object in question is thought to be about 450 kilometers across and has been provisionally named 212VP113, with the VP in the name, as in Veep, they've nicknamed it Biden. It is much further away than Neptune. Neptune orbits our sun about 30 astronomical units away, which is based on the radius of our Earth's orbit, meaning Neptune's 30 times further out, or about 150 million kilometers. The highly elliptical orbit followed by 212 VP113, a.k.a. Biden, brings it no closer to the sun than 80 astronomical units. This orbit puts Biden much further out than even the Kuiper Belt, a collection of icy asteroids beyond the orbit of Neptune, of which Pluto, which as we all know was booted out of the Planetary Club in 2006, makes its home. The two researchers suggest that their find is a member of the inner part of the Oort Cloud, a collection of dwarf planets, asteroids, and comets thought but not yet proved to surround the Sun and which may extend as much as half of the four light years distance to Alpha Centauri, the nearest star. Now, some models of how our solar system works suggest there ought to be a gulf of empty space between the Kuiper Belt's edge and the Oort cloud's beginning, somewhere around 10,000 astronomic units from the sun. Unfortunately for those models, Biden sits in that gap, and the Oort cloud gap theory had already taken a hit when back in 2003, Mike Brown of Caltech discovered a dwarf planet called Sedna, a thousand kilometers across, traveling in an orbit similar to that of Biden, exactly where it should not have been. Finding one such body could have been a fluke, but a second strongly suggests that there is an inner Oort cloud. In fact, I like the name that some put on to Biden. They're calling it a Sednoid. Given that, like Sedna, it has this highly elliptical orbit, taking it something like 
500 astronomic units out in space. And when we read Mike Brown's book about the discovery of Sedna a couple years back, we tried to contact him at Caltech to come on to this program and talk about it. And uh, we didn't get anywhere with him, but we may try again. Now that there's a second object like Sedna out there, uh, things are getting curiouser and curiouser. In fact, Chadwick Trujillo and others have noted that Sedna and Biden and a handful of smaller objects share some similar values of a particular orbital characteristic called the argument of perihelion. You know, and if you ask us, that'd be a pretty good band name. But apparently the argument of perihelion describes the angle that, these, that their orbits form with the plane of the solar system. Computer models suggest that these angles should be randomly distributed, but so far they don't seem to be. And according to Drs. Trujillo and Shepard, one possible explanation is that the gravity of something big, distant and unseen, is marshalling the orbits of these smaller hunks of rock. The two researchers say that their data is compatible with the idea of a giant planet lurking in the far reaches of the solar system. Now, compatible with is not the same thing as proof of, of course, and... Uh, Unlike the makers of science fiction films, most astronomers are skeptical of a Planet X hypothesis, of which there have been plenty over the years. But it's noted that things should become clear in the not-too-distant future when new telescopes more capable of spotting dim, distant objects come into operation. Now, a few years back, we had on this program Richard Muller, professor of physics at UC Berkeley, who's championing the idea of nemesis a red dwarf star which may actually be orbiting our own sun, but is so dim and so bloody far out that it's hard to see. Dr. Muller and others have invoked Nemesis as, as a possible ex explanation for why there appears to be a pattern of extinctions here on Earth every 26 million years or so. They speculate that uh, comets could get knocked out of the Oort cloud by the passing uh, companion star and then crash down into the, into the inner solar system, including planet Earth, and wreaking havoc here and there. We have a sneaking suspicion when they continue to look at these argument of perihelions as they arise, we might discover that uh, it's not an orbiting red dwarf or perhaps brown dwarf, but maybe a planet out there that's disturbing those comets. Interesting stuff. We're going to follow this one very closely. Anyway, I know it went on a bit about on that topic, but it's just so damn fascinating, I couldn't help myself. But let us take a short break. I'm Douglas Abbott. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just so lonely. Although it's always crowded, you still can find some room for broken-hearted lovers to cry there in the gloom. Be so, I'll be just so lonely, baby. I'll be just so lonely. I'll be so lonely, they could die. Keep flowing, the death clerk's dressed in black. Well, they've been so long on the street, they'll never, they'll never look back and think of something. 